Everybody has questions. If you don't have questions, you're no longer alive. Why this and not that? We have since Easter been trying to dialogue, not answer, but dialogue about some of the deepest questions in the human condition. That is, we ask you, what are some of the questions you have about God? Or that you don't have yourself, but when somebody asks you, you you would be pressed to explain. We received over 60 different people responding and, uh, and have tried to hack away at some of those. It's been, for me, uh, a really neat time together because it has felt out in the great room or through the week like some of you are thinking about these things and said, you know, that made me wonder about this, so that we are together trying to discern this world that God has put us into. By far, by far, the most popular question was about God's will. There were six or seven different questions about that. The first was, how do I discern God's will? How do God's will and our free will fit together? How do we know God's calling on our own lives? That's what Mark was talking about last week. Another person asked, as a fairly new believer, how do I know it's God's will versus my will for any decision or action I might take? How do I hear God's voice? How do I know when God is speaking to me? Questions that the church has grappled with for millennia. I'd like to have us talk about that on a very practical level today, but let me start with three little caveats when we talk about the will of God for us. The the, the first, frankly, is uh, that preachers have given you a disservice talking about the will of God. We talk about the will of God and we talk about the, the incident of the burning bush. When you see the burning bush, go to the burning bush. How many of you have seen a burning bush? Not me. Or, or we talk about Gideon and the fleece that keeps flipping over and God will teach you that way. Or in the Old Testament there's a passage where God speaks through the voice of a donkey. If you hear a donkey speaking to you, it's probably God. But not many of us have that experience. My sense is that almost always the will of God comes quieter. And in some ways that makes it more difficult with all the noise in my life. And if we are to discern what God's call on our lives is, we need to recognize that it is more likely to be a nudge that I need to open my heart to rather than a big red flag waving, over here, stupid, over here. And in some ways that's good. Because the first thing we need to say about the will of God that is, is that it is not primarily about the decision that you are making. i got to tell you, I'm not sure God cares whether you work at Ecolab or Target. Whether you uh, get a job at Cargill or leave and start something on your own. I think that what God's primary will is for you is will you listen to me? And as you listen Will you become the kind of person like my son Jesus? Will you grow in his ability to love me and love other people? That's God's primary will. All these secondary things are tactical. Who am I becoming? Caveat number one. At number two is that I think there's often a confusion between faith and faithfulness. In in the book of Hebrews it says, And Abraham went out by faith, not sure where he would end up. 
That's making a decision, not sure, but going by faith. Faithfulness is different. Faithfulness is God has told you what to do. Will you be faithful to obey? You know, the old story that you've all heard about the guy whose house is on a river and the river is flooding and he prays, God, save me from this. And he goes up on the roof, sure that God will save him. And a canoe comes by and says, jump. And he says, no, God's going to save me. And 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 then a powerboat comes by and says, jump. No, no, God's going to save me. And a helicopter comes and says, your house is just about to burn. Why don't you get out and we'll send a rope down. No, no, God's going to save me. The house falls into the river. He drowns and he ends up at the pearly gates. And he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, well, you idiot, I sent you a canoe and a motorboat and a helicopter. What did you expect, dancing girls? Often, it's not that we don't know what to do. We are choosing to wait for another answer. We are choosing whether to obey or not. Is it faith helping you understand what to do, or is it faithfulness helping you obey what you already know you should do? Let me say that the third little caveat is that we call it faith because it's a mystery. It is a mystery. God is not up there guiding you like a rat in a maze. And if you turn to the right and you're wrong, zapping you. And if you turn to the left, you get closer to the cheese. God has something completely different in, may, in, in mind and it is a mystery. I, I have found this out personally. When Laura and I were first married, we were uh, associates in Chicago. And after four or five years, we had the sense that it was time for us to go, to do something new. And so I started to apply uh, for different uh, pastoral positions around the country. We must have gone to seven or eight or nine of these over the next uh, year. And in almost every event... I was in my early 30s at the time, and almost every event, I came out as the number two candidate. And the chairperson would call and say, we really liked you, we really thought it was good, but frankly, you were a little too much change for us. You kept saying, if you don't want to grow, if you don't want to change, we don't want to change, and we don't want to grow. And so it was no, over and over. And, And then a friend called and said, I have a different idea, what if you were to uh, go to the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., be the executive pastor there until the senior pastor retires. We thought about it. It was a different thing. Uh, and, and after a lot of prayer, uh, we, we decided to do it. It was the hardest two years of our lives. I'm not sure that I was well fitted to be the number two person. At that point in my life, I was way too arrogant. I'm not sure that Washington, D.C. is a great place to raise two infant children. It was tough on our family. It was a church that was in turmoil. I'm not sure I added to calming it down as much as stirring it up. All that to say, when we ended up coming here, following uh, Roger's tenure, uh, it could not have been clearer. It was literally as if God was sending up Fireworks saying, over here, over here, over here, I want you to come here. And we had a delightful shift to come here. And it has been a privilege to be here for 26 years. But the reason that I'm telling you that story is because I think we were just as faithful trying to decide about Washington as we were 
trying to decide about Edina. And I don't think that God said, wrong answer, boom. I think God taught us things in those two years we never would have learned otherwise. God's will is a mystery because God's heart for you is bigger than we can possibly imagine. So, all that said, how do you make a God-engaged decision? How do you get God involved in the process? See if any of these things are happening to you or someone that you love. These are the times when a God-engaged decision is probably coming up. Now, the first one, frankly, is Yogi Berra time. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Okay. So when you graduate, when you retire, when you are divorced, when someone dies or a relationship is over, you have come to a fork in the road. This is a time where you will be called to make decisions. In the same way, there are forced, there are choices that are forced upon us, and they are not always bad at all. You have to choose between scholarships at two different schools, something I really never had to worry about. Your department, your entire department is closed at work, and you have to decide where to go next. There is an opportunity that arises, and you have to decide whether to leave the security of now for this new thing, but a choice is being forced upon you. Is that you? How do you decide? In the same way, I think that there are times where decisions come to us because the world changes. For many of us, our view of the world changed on 9-11. How we spend our time and our resources, how we serve in the larger world, it, it flipped. In the Bible, Nehemiah asks a casual question of his friend. How are things going in Jerusalem? Well, the place is a wreck. The city's in ruins. It's in fire. The gates are falling down. And Nehemiah's heart is wrecked because his world has changed. He can't go on where he is knowing what's happening over there. Is that you? Sometimes you know it's time to make a decision because other people keep telling you it's time to make a decision. Your friends keep going, have you thought about or have you ever considered... Everything that you read seems to be about this decision that you don't want to make. Every, it's like when you want to buy a new car and you say, should I buy that or that? You see them all over the road. It keeps coming into your mind as if it's time to make a decision. And I think that the, the last one that shows me that it is time to make a change or at least a decision is there is a growing sense of discontentment. Things may be okay from the outside. They may look good. But there is a growing, is this all there is? Am I supposed to do this forever? It's not always a sign that you need to change. Sometimes it is a sign that says, yes, more discipline required. You're tired of learning algebra. You need to get through the second semester. But other times, it's a sign that a change has to come. This last month, I've been asked by somebody about whether they should move or stay. I've been asked uh, about whether this person who lost his job should start something on his own or join a new firm. And since it's this time of the year, I have spent time with young people asking about which school or grad school. And each of these call for times when we need to make a decision. In each of those, I have tried to be not only spirit-oriented, listen for God, 
But I've tried to be intensely practical about this. How do you make that kind of decision? I'm really marked by a talk I heard Bob Munger give probably 25 years ago. And uh, Munger said that uh, there's a certain harbor in Italy that can only be reached by sailing up a narrow channel between dangerous rocks on either side. And, And over the years, many ships have been wrecked after they've left the sea on the way to the city. And so to guide ships safely into the port, huge lights have been mounted on poles in the harbor. And when the lights are lighted, they show the way in a fairly unique manner. If they are lined up and you can see three or four of the lights at the same time, then you're in trouble. But if the lights are lined up so that you can only see one, then you go in that line. You go in that direction. The lights are meant to line up. When you see two or three, you're in trouble. Or you're going the wrong way. So, what we want to talk about is not finding out the secret to always knowing God's will, but to lining up the light so that you are going in the correct direction. Let me give you four lights that will guide you toward godly decisions. The first, as should be no surprise here, is that we believe God speaks to us most clearly through the Word, through the Scriptures, that they are given to us, not like a Ouija board that you go, oh, Berkeley. That's not what they're there for. And frankly, the scriptures are are not there to provide an objective standard. This is how you figure it out. The scriptures are a story of how God worked in people's lives and they made God-honoring decisions or God-avoiding decisions. The scriptures are places where you can find wisdom. The book of James says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask me. And then the scriptures will show you how to become wise. Wisdom is about making good decisions. It's not telling you what to do. It's about making good decisions. Many are the plans in the heart, Proverbs says, but the Lord's purpose will prevail if we allow it. Paul says all things work together for the good. But I think really that means in all things God works. Or God's at work in all things. Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be like everybody else, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to attest and to approve what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is for you. The passage we used before. Abraham went out by faith, not knowing where he would end. You know what the most common verse that is used in the inauguration of a new president, when, the, when they open the Bible and it's set to a certain verse, the most common verse that's used in those 40-plus inaugurations is from the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. God's Word. 
the more you know it, when you don't need it to make a decision, the more God speaks to it, speaks through it in those times of need. The second of the lights that you're trying to line up, the second beacon, I believe is uh, the word wiring. I, I started out by calling it circumstances, and sometimes the circumstances are helpful. They tell you, no, you are flat broke, you should not buy the new house. That's circumstances. Uh, that's, that's a not a tough decision to make, even though I can convince myself, well, if I took this stupid loan, I don't do it. But more often, wiring is not just about the circumstances. God wants to speak to you about how you are made different from her, and different from her, and different from him. What passions has God put in your part? What gifts has God offered you? What is the season of life that you are in? Each of those are important to your wiring. And how you will respond to make this decision. Yesterday afternoon, I, was fin- I had finished the sermon. I was walking down to pick up the printed copy. And I walked by our accountant's office. And our part-time accountant, who was sitting there last night, uh, was there. And I looked at her and we said, hi, hi. And as I, I walked away, I was like, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that I am not an accountant. The church would be bankrupt in a week. I am sure as I walked away... The accountant was saying, oh, Jesus, thank God that I don't have to speak in front of hundreds of people this afternoon. We are wired differently. We are gifted differently. As you consider whether you should do this or not, see how God has wired you. What are your passions? What do you dream that God would have you lean toward? And does this move you in that direction or not? Frederick Buechner was a Presbyterian minister, but he was wired to be an author. Pulitzer Prize nominated twice, and he talked about this idea of God wiring us. He says, the place where God calls you is the place that your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Not my place, that's my place. Your place will be different. God is calling you to get there. Not just just who you are, but who God is creating you to be that you don't even know that you could be yet. And here, frankly, I think is where God often puts us in trouble and amps up the volume saying, a choice has to be made here. Make the choice. Don't stay where you are. Because God is trying to create something new in you. And our culture says, no, 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 no. Carl Barth says this, the siren song of our age is comfort. Many of you are very comfortable. Most popular chair in America today, anybody know? I'll give you a hint. It's not called the worker boy. It's not called the risky boy. It's not called the adventure boy. It's called the lazy boy. Some of you actually seem to have known that. People who sit in lazy boys all the time are called couch potatoes. And I think that the spiritual version of that is pew potatoes. Jesus is looking for people who will get off of the pew and into the journey. The third light, if the first is the word and the second is how you're wired, the third light that can help you make a decision is, uh, frankly, a little counterintuitive to American culture. 
I believe that you should not make a significant decision without talking to somebody else who is a follower of Christ. I think, frankly, that this often is where guys have trouble. Please don't take this as sexist, but I sometimes feel like women talk to everybody about everything. Guys talk to nobody about nothing. I want to make this decision. It seems to me that a more godly pattern of making decisions is to ask others in the body of Christ what they see. Too often we don't do this not only because we want to make the decision, but because we know that the decision we make is maybe not the decision that they would make for us or with us. Because our pride or our fear is driving us. I think that an unwillingness to submit to the discernment of other people is always a bad sign. But frankly, so is asking other people to make your decision. That's not what we're talking about here. You're asking for discernment, conversations that guide both of you. I saw one of these this week. A young man in, uh, in our community uh, felt like uh, it was time to make a change, and, and a job came to him. And I was like, wow. And after some fumbling and talking with his wife, he said, I, I think I need to, to leave here and, and go over there. And he came and talked to one of our folks. And this guy said, oh, we're going to miss you so much. You are great at what you do. You've got all kinds of friends here, but I'm excited for you. Well, all this person heard was, you really ought to stay. Because he was really afraid of going. And, and so he came back the next day and he said, I, I think I've changed my mind. I think I'm going to stay. And my friend sat down with him and said, that's great. Tell me why you think God wants you to stay. What is it about staying here that will make you who you're called to be down the road? And over the course of that conversation, it became much clearer that the reason for staying was fear of making a huge mistake. And so at the end of that day, he came back into my, into my room and said, I'm still leaving wouldn't have done that by himself. Parker Palmer says this. My core religious beliefs include this simple article of faith. The God who gave all of us life wants us to do the same for each other. God gives us life. He wants us to give each other life. If we want to grow, we must do something alien to our culture. We must open up to each other about our inner lives, which is, frankly, risky stuff in a world that fears the personal and seeks safety in the technical, the distant, the abstract. Who is there in your life, whether you are 15 in high school or 85 in retirement, who is there in your life who is close enough for you to open up to that they might pray with you? That's one reason, by the way, that I believe God calls you to worship in a community like this. So the, the word of God is the first point, the fixed point. The second one that needs to line up behind it when you make a decision is your wiring. The third is the counsel of others. And I, I think the fourth, the fourth light is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go all mystical, booga-booga, Pentecostal on you, but I'm going to say that Presbyterians are terrified that when they pray, God might actually answer. I think God wants to answer. And that can only happen when I am quiet and I have read the Word 
and I have listened to godly people, and I have looked at how I am made. And I believe that persistent prayer can lead our hearts. Often in line with these first three lights. Sometimes, frankly though, sometimes the place you're being led seems to be very different than who you are. Or or very different than what other people think. That may be the Holy Spirit. It's rare, but it may happen. It will never be that the Spirit will lead you against what God has said in His Word. No, you are not being called by God to leave Him because you find Him much more attentive to you. That is not God. But there are many places where the Holy Spirit will speak to you in unusual or new ways. And that's why... Often this is such an emotional process, this making a decision, because I don't feel peace about the decision that I'm making. Of course you don't feel peace. It's not over. You haven't taken these three steps so that you can look back and say, oh, I understand. I, um, I love a, a brother of mine, John Ortberg, a friend. He has preached here, written some great books, and uh, his latest book is about knowing the will of God. And I have not read it. And the reason that I've not read it is because I didn't want to have you hear what John Erpberg thinks the will of God is instead of what I do. And so I have prayed and read and studied. And just yesterday when this was done, I finally agreed with my wife that it was time to read Ortberg's book. This should be your summer book. Go to the pathways, to write your name down, and they will get you a copy of all the places to go. How will you know? It's a great book. It really is. My wife has read this uh, copy, and the reason you can tell that it's my wife's copy is because every single sentence in this book is underlined. (laughs) I don't think John is that smart, and I don't think he's that good-looking, but my wife apparently does. It's all underlined. Oh, this is how God will tell you. But I I, I got to page 45 yesterday afternoon, and I, I read a whole page that was not underlined. A few months into our marriage, while I was still in grad school, John says, I got a phone call telling me that I was being offered a fellowship to study abroad. I told my new wife, Nancy, and then I started to ask the school uh, uh, some questions. Would the classes count toward my degree? No. Would it take me longer to graduate if we went? Yes. Would there be enough money to travel on? No. Would anybody at the school be waiting for us? No. Would my wife, Nancy, be able to work? Yes. As a maid, he said, I hung up the phone and I started to make a list of the pros and cons that we would have to discuss, except I couldn't think of any pros to put on that side that my wife would buy. And I came home and I saw that my wife had already packed the bags. This is when I knew that I was married to a woman who walks through doors that God opens. I am stunned that my wife did not think that this was a good illustration. I need to ask her. John finishes with this quote. He says, God is doing something magnificent in this world through us. When a door is open to you, count the costs and weigh the pros and cons and get good counsel. Look as far down the road as you can, but in your deepest heart. In its most secret place, have a tiny bias in the direction of, yes, I'll do that, yes. Cultivate a willingness 
to charge through open doors, even if it's not this particular door. And you will find God on the other side. Maybe not the answer you wanted, maybe not success, but you will find the God who loves you walking through with you. We would like to end uh, this uh, sermon uh, by doing something a little different. People have to weigh decisions that will change their lives, and we asked four people if they would weigh that and become elders in our church, join the session of our church. And uh, four of them have, have said yes. You can put the names up uh, on the screen. But uh, Margot and Annalise and Jay and Alan have prayerfully considered what it would mean to be on the elder board, and they have uh, said yes. I'd like to ask you four to come forward. Actually, Annalise is not here, but if the other three would come forward, that would be great. And you stand on the second step here, please. Jay and Alan and Margot uh, are here. Now, would all of you who have served as elders in the past, here or elsewhere, we call you the College of Elders, would you please come up and stand on the floor behind them? The College of Elders. We say that one of the geniuses of this church is that God refuses to let people stay in the pews. And these people have listened to the call of God and have said yes. It makes no sense, but yes. I must, are you sure you got the name right in the directory? Yes, I'll do it. And uh, Jay and Alan, uh, Margot, and Annalise are joining that company. We would like to pray for these who have made a godly decision. Let me begin by asking you three questions. The first is what we ask our members. Do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Do you? Do you intend to be his faithful disciple, to share his love and know his word? Do you? Will you now step forward in service to the kingdom of heaven as an elder of this church and serve with creativity, energy, imagination, and love? Will you? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that in every age, From east to west, you call young and old and male and female all who have a heart for you and you plant in them a desire to serve you. This being an elder is not all it's cracked up to be. There are long meetings and big fights. There are lots of prayer and much uncertainty. It is, frankly, much more fun to be a deacon. You actually feel like you are doing something. But without the elders, Lord, we would not hear your voice as clearly. Without sisters and brothers to be partners with the pastors, all the body would not be used. So I ask you to come, and by your Holy Spirit and in our presence, Anoint these new elders with wisdom and with courage, with boldness, with humility. And overall, open the eyes of their heart. They might not only see our future, but they might see others around them as you do. Bless them in this decision in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessings on you, brother and sister.